0: Tomorrow is a busy day We, 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 we've got things to do we got eggs to lay we got ground to dig And worms to scratch
1: It takes a lot of satin Getting chicks to hatch A cluck, 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 cluck Take in the air He locked up the barnyard With the greatest of care Down in the hen house Something stirred When he shouted, who's there? This is what he heard Cluck, 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 cluck There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all So calm
0: yourself and stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us We chickens trying to sleep then you bust in and hobble,
1: hobble, hobble, hobble
2: with your chin. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. All right. There ain't nobody here at all. Ain't nobody here but us chickens. Welcome to another Ask or Tell Me Anything show. It's where you call 888 720 WNPR. Or if you are not into the alphanumeric thing, 888 720 9677. And you may ask or tell me anything. Um. OK. And, and uh, but I have to say, I have another announcement to I have an announcement to make. which is, Now, as some of you know, if you're familiar, familiar with this kind of episode, we have something called available called the, the Mr. Karp envelopes. These are provided to us by, oddly enough, Mr. Karp. Uh, but lately, and the rule is, so they are stuffed full of clippings. I have not seen these clippings. I have not opened these envelopes. The rule has been, that it requires a phone call from you to for the envelopes to be opened. But that hasn't happened for a while. So the envelopes are backing up. Mr. Karp has now said that he is petitioning the court for a special master to examine the bag of envelopes that I have. Uh, and he may be invoking executive privilege or claiming reputational damage. So I feel that we have to sort of— kind of oil up the machinery that gets us to open these envelopes. I feel like I should open at least one of them today. So it will no longer require a phone call from you. But (laughs) if anybody uses any of the following words in their call, I will open a Mr. Carp envelope. Okay, the the words are purple, puppet, platypus, and pineapple. All right? If any of those words are... (laughs) I like how I just sort of make up these rules sitting here, you know. They have the, they seem planned, all right? Anyway, that's the plan with that. All right, so I think that's all that we really need to cover right now. Um, and let's begin with Mary of Kent. I believe Mary of Kent is a character in King Lear, right? The wife of the Earl of Kent? Um, um, I don't know. Yes, I know. I believe you stay loyal to Lear and you impersonate peasants uh, so that he <laughs> won't banish you.
3: All I had to say is purple plotted post pocket. Uh, all
2: right, we're going to open a Mr. Carp envelope, but why don't you get to say your thing first, and then whatever okay. that is, and then I'll open up a Mr. Carp envelope.
3: So um, whenever I hear excessive commercials, I think of the old series Creature Feature, and I keep on saying to myself, "Creeping commercials," because more and more commercials keep on creeping into NPR. And every time I turn it on, I have to listen to the same commercial over and over and over again every well, time I turn on.
2: I'm NPR. sure the people up on the fifth and sixth floors of this building would like me to point out that we don't really have commercials. We may have funder credits or funding credits or – I don't know. I never go to the meeting, so I don't know. But it's something like that. We don't have commercials, right?
3: Okay. Um, well, it's, it's a continuous onslaught of every time I turn on the NPR, I hear – um, something, I don't know what the word is to use besides advertising. Try um, um,
2: underwriter promos. Try saying that. Underwriter okay. promos. Underwriter
3: promos.
2: There you go. See? But it feels good to say it, right?
3: They're they're incessant, repetitive, and annoying.
2: I'm sorry they're annoying. One thing I will say is that prior to coming here, I worked for 16 years in commercial radio. Believe me, uh-huh. you have no idea what I, incessant— I know how much force it is. <laughs> I'm a
3: very happy monthly— Contributor, sustaining Contributor, I think is what my label is, um, which I happily, happily pay for. Um, but I don't know. Even if you just mix them up a little bit. All
2: the, right. So better be, better under, maybe under, the yes. Pink
3: flamingos is right. just like, oh, please. Not okay.
2: Well, that's not even, that's just a commercial for us. That's not even a, like, we're not getting any <sighs> money for the flamingos. Out. At least
3: mix them up. Yeah. You know? I, by them the way,
2: I'm going to say something. I may get in trouble for this. I agree with you. I've heard the damn flamingo thing, but that's like a that is a promo for something that's appearing on public television. So it's not like this is all. That's all one big company. We're not getting any money. To, right. you know, to run that We're, thing. We're just trying to get you interested or some kid interested in watching that show. But I 100 okay. percent agree. I'm tired of hearing about the pink flamingos. I get it. They eat the shrimp. It turns them pink. I didn't believe it at first. People, I had to look it up.
3: That's right.
2: up. I, you know, OK, we, you, you and I are on the same page you got to mix them up. you got to vary them a little bit. That's actually one of the reasons we wrote a whole bunch of new—we and produced a whole bunch of new promos for this show because we realized the old ones were getting kind of boring. So I, I would agree with that. I, I like the ones for your
3: show, and there's the one recently where a girl, a lady, does a, a one for your show, and it, it is entertaining.
2: It's probably Cat Pastor. I think so. She's very yes. entertaining. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yes. And she has a good voice. I like her voice.
2: Yeah. We all do. Um, all right. So I feel, I hear you. I feel your pain. I've, but it's not commercials. Don't say commercials anymore. So because no, some like some that. of the some of these are just promos for other stuff within this company. Like the, the, Sometimes you have to give like well. a funding credit or something like that. You know. Yeah. Then
3: there's the one with for something or other dental.
2: Okay, that that's not actually. I do practice a little dentistry on site here, uh, <laughs> but I don't think that's what it's uh, they're talking about. Um, and I don't. I don't like. I what I would do is just routine cavities and stuff like that. I don't do root canals or any of the other stuff. I went to a school in Central America where we, we never got to that. There was the guy who was going to teach root canals and he was killed and eaten by a jaguar. So oh, I never wow. learned how to do the other stuff. Oh, so my. anyway, I hear you. I know there's maybe more underwriter credits than you like. And then there's the flamingos. I'm sick of the flamingos. I'm 100% with you on the flamingos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Now because of that, I have to open I'm sorry I know there's like a lot of people who've called in, but I'm opening a Mr. Carp envelope anyway. I'm I can't guarantee that I will be able to speak intelligibly about this. Okay. This says uh inoculate conception, the Empress and the English doctor. All right, that's gonna take too long to figure out what it is. I'm throwing that one aside. Just because it just is a little inscrutable. This one might be this one is about a book review of a—we're eh, not going to do this one either. No, nope, no, nope, too hard. Um, all right, I'm down to the last one. This, this isn't going well. This isn't my idea of something going well. Patriotism, energy, and optimism, says this clip. This year marks the 125th anniversary of John Philip Seuss's triumphant The Stars and Stripes Forever, the finest and most famous American march. Is that really true? Is it really the finest and most—it might be the most famous, but is it the finest American march? I have a good story about that, but probably no time to tell it. It helps cement his reputation as the nation's first musical superstar. Oh, it's all about – this is all about John Philip Sousa, which is an interesting topic. I just want to say one thing about that, OK? I will say one thing about that and we will go to the calls. So there used to be this thing if you were a political reporter, if you were like covering the state capitol, which I was as a young man, where once a year the, um, the governor would go to inspect the National Guard units – at Fort Drum, which is in upstate New York, and a member of the press, a Hartford Current reporter, which I was at the time, was was required that someone travel with the governor just to see what happened. And and hilarious complications would often ensue. So I, the governor happened to be Ella Grasso. <laughs> That's how old I am. <laughs> uh, I was a young reporter and I was uh, sent up to Fort Drum with uh, Governor Grasso, who was mad at me that particular day about something that had been in the paper. I don't remember what. So I don't think she spoke to me the entire day, including the fact that we were riding around in helicopters. <laughs> you know, at very There's like not that many different places to sit in an army helicopter. So uh, I don't think she spoke to me all day. Uh, and there, a lot of funny things happened. But the funniest thing was there was a band up there, an army band, a military band, where I'm pretty sure the person had a sense of humor, the person running it. 'Cause as we got off the plane, the so plane lands on the landing strip and the you know, the stairs come down and we walk down, the governor's walking down, and the band's out there and it's playing Which I know is a legitimate march. I don't know if it's a SUSE march. I know it's a legitimate march, but it's also the theme song to Monty, Monty Python, and that's how most people know it. Um and, and later on, <clears throat> as we entered this big reception at the end of the day, the governor entered. The band started playing a military version of, a military march-style version of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I thought, there's somebody funny running this band. I mean, so there's somebody with a real sense of humor. All right, that's all. Uh, we've opened a Mr. Carp envelope. I believe we've warded off any kind of legal problems. Let's go to Mark in Wyndham. Hi, Mark.
4: Hi, Colin. How are you? Um, The reason I'm calling is because in March of 2020, when COVID was hitting and getting very serious and we went into lockdown uh, and my ski season was cut short, I was in the house for about three days and it did not take long before I started going stir crazy and needing to get outside. So I went outside and I started hiking one day and the next day I went a little bit further and a little bit further. And what I found out was that there are a plethora of trails that and trail systems in Connecticut that I had no idea existed. And besides just the state parks, there's land trusts and there are preserves. And we have, I live in Eastern Connecticut and just, I found out that there are some excellent and beautiful places in our part of Connecticut uh, to go hiking at. And after hiking for about three months, I set a goal for myself of hiking Mount Washington. So wow. at the age of 60, at the age of 62, I hiked Mount Washington uh, in that summer of, in August. But what I found out is that there's a whole bunch of and and I what I also realized. There were a lot of people that were doing the same thing yes. I was doing.
2: Yeah, well, I noticed the out. same thing. beginning the, So I'm a pretty regular hiker dog walker. I, I'm no longer, for various reasons, doing, you know, I, I'm not a candidate for Mount Washington, but I've been hiking all over the state for a lot of years. And it was really funny, right, at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of starting sometime around March of 2020 and then continuing, you know, all the way probably to the following winter, there were, like, you know, you couldn't get a parking space in some of these places that I used to right. to hike routinely and not see another human being. There would actually be parking problems and traffic jams to get into the parking lot of a hiking area. So, that I mean, that was a good thing. It's a good problem to have. But you're absolutely right. A lot of people did it.
4: And the, the other thing I didn't realize is that there are apps out there that can track your trails and tell you exactly where you are. Um, and there are Facebook groups of hikers that have, that are going. One Facebook group I'm in is, uh, Connecticut Hikers and Outdoor Adventures. And there are hundreds of people in that one Facebook group. So I think it would be a great idea for, uh, a show to just, Go over the different parts of hiking in Connecticut because we have a beautiful state. All right. People, yes.
2: Actually, I totally agree with you. Back in our first of all, I use an app called NML, which tells me what the nearest mountain lion to me is. Uh, so I really I recommend getting that. But also, it, earlier on in our show, we actually did our show from a hiking trail, uh, which was not technologically a terribly easy thing to do. But we went out to a hiking trail. I forget where it was it was like in Portland or someplace uh and uh we did we did the show entirely from there but but yes i you know i support I support all of this every and i except that I would never join a group of hikers. my entire goal is to get as far away from human beings as I possibly can, so <laughs> I mean not generally in life but when I'm hiking, so I would never do that, but other than that, all right let's. Move along here. Oh, it's Dave. It's Dave in Lake Como, uh, Ohio slash Italy. Um, Dave, good to hear you. Good to see you up the board there.
5: Colin, thanks for taking my call. I hope you're well. I'm fine. Um, you know, I was thinking of calling about the Antarctic ice shelf and what that means for the Connecticut coast, but it was so depressing. I just I figured I'll do how about grammatical pet peeves installment number nineteen instead.
2: All right. And then, yes, because right up to the time that we all drowned um, right. or what we should not be using good grammar. So it all fits together.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this seems to be this one just really bothers me. And it seems to be the special province of the local newscaster, not just in Connecticut. It's everywhere. You know, it's a report begins with a phrase like, um, a Sunday afternoon at a Wisconsin shopping mall turns deadly. And I think they mean – they're always saying deadly when they mean fatal. I mean, if somebody gets into that shopping mall with, you know – like, like two grenades with the pins pulled and, you know, and, and, and they're, they're, they're holding them. That's deadly because that's capability. If they let those grenades go in a crowd, obviously that has fatal results. Is this an antiquated distinction or do you mean does anybody else notice this? It really bugs me.
2: Yeah. I don't, I think that one's probably a lost battle. I think if Peter Sokolowski of Merriam-Webster, who is our kind of go-to guy about stuff like this, were here, and he's yeah. kind of more descriptive than prescriptive as a lexicographer, he would probably say, "Oh no, well that's just people. Said, that's now an idiom. People just say it. You are, yeah. you are fighting a battle that was over." Well, as
5: you know, I specialize in those lost grammatical
2: battles. There but. you go. So you, so you do you, you know. Um, all right. So <laughs> All right. There's there's like okay. I'm gonna take one or two more calls and then we'll go to a break. Here is Linda in Simsbury. Hi, Linda.
6: Hi, Colin. I I'm uh three years into Connecticut and you are one of my favorite things in Connecticut. Thank you.
2: Well, you are one of my favorite uh, things in Connecticut. So there Oh well,
6: great. So I cannot get out of my head um the Ideas behind um, circular economy—you know, mm-hmm. building in the prices of removal or replacement into products—and I also can't get over that we really need big changes, and soon uh, regarding climate change or, you know, saving us and the planet. So the other day, a friend of mine was saying that it came to. Some local town council that they needed to add another pickup for recycling, like another day of pickups, mm-hmm. because there's so much more recycled uh, material in their pails that they're overflowing and how much that would cost. And then it was considered, how about adding two pails to the subscription to accommodate people who have more blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, what, like, how about getting people? Wouldn't it be an introduction to the big idea of, of circular economy to have, they, Amazon have to take back their stuff, their
3: packaging?
2: Right. Well, I mean, the way you would do that, first of all, I think it's a really good idea. Um, <laughs> second of all, um, the, the way that you would typically do this uh, is that you would do what we do with the bottle bill, right? You would charge uh, a, a deposit. Um, no,
6: no, it shouldn't be at the consumer level. That's the problem.
2: Right, but I mean, you could force them to take the stuff back anyway uh, by creating a financial incentive. Um right. and, and you could charge the deposit on their end. I mean, I'm just talking out of my oh, yeah, okay. butt right now. Who knows? Uh-huh. But I'm just uh, – just Back of back of envelope, as they say, uh, why could you charge it on their end? So there, there could be some way in which they're held liable for a box that they don't. So you want the company to take it back. Now, the question that I would also have, and here we would need someone like Mike Payne to tell us, is, is that the most right. efficient way to deal with these boxes? So in other words, the, the good news oh. about the system that we have now, if there is any good news, is that... You know, okay, so there's you're sitting there in Simsbury, and you get some boxes. And so on one day of the week or possibly two days of the week, depending on how they work it out, uh, a truck shows up from Payne's or wherever and takes it to a a nearby location where there's uh, single stream recycling. So it all gets sorted out and everything, and they figure out what to do with these boxes. Now, the question would be, is it more efficient, particularly in the amount of fuel that would be used, to— to have it go all the way back to where Amazon would want it to go. I realize Amazon's also pretty decentralized and they've got, you know, buildings in this area too. Maybe it would be okay. But Payne's might argue, no, actually we can handle this stuff better and and probably more fuel efficiently and with a lower carbon footprint than anybody else because we're already doing it. But I don't know. I'm just sort of saying. I'm just, you know, I don't mean to poke holes in your idea because I think it's a good idea to – because, I mean, one thing about Amazon is that they do – they will occasionally say, well, <clears throat> you just ordered three things. We can deliver them on different days or we could all de- deliver them all on one day in one box in one trip up your driveway. And almost nobody ever selects that because they want <laughs> things as soon as they can get them. But I think Amazon should just decide to do that because there's two kinds of boxes, right? One of them – if you buy a 55-inch Samsung television um, – you know, it's it's going to be in a box. Uh, and it's always going to be in a box. Uh, but there, then there are all these boxes that are kind of added to the process, boxes that contain other packages of smaller things. And that's kind of Amazon's probably their cardinal sin there. So I, I agree that somehow or other we should address this. There's way too much of it. Uh, and, I mean, there's this way, way – it's too easy to. Yeah, and this is like an actual
6: – problem in an actual town that they were consider they are considering adding a second a second pickup to Just yeah. this one town. Second pickup. I totally
2: believe day. that. I mean honestly, right. my blue we only get our we get big blue things where I live and they the, the recycle bin only gets picked up once every two weeks. But mine's it just so happens this week. It's already full and there's a week right. to go. So I think right. we are all doing this and we are all somewhat culpable in this too. We could order less stuff. We could insist that it not be delivered wastefully. Um, I mean, it's all, like, totally legitimate. I'm not exactly sure that we have, between the two of us, figured out the solution. But I do know it's time to take a break. We'll come back. we got lots of interesting calls. Ask or tell me anything continues.
7: There was a moon and a street lamp know i drank such a lot till i pissed a tequila and a corner the full length of the parking lot oh i talk too loose again i talk too open and free i pay a high price for my open talking like you do for your silent mystery.
8: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare.
0: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach.
8: Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery, it takes about two hours, and essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing.
0: Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure.
8: Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below thirty-five, and you have to have, to have tried and failed CPAP.
0: To learn more, go to ctpublic.org/slash/elevating-health.
2: All right, that song is partly what's partly to um, irritate John Dankosky, but the other reason is, so I had this raincoat. I don't know. The people really, really want to get on the air. Oh, Aaron hung up. Darn it. Um, people want to get on the air, but uh, I had this raincoat, and uh, there's there are people. I'm not going to say who they are. I'm not going to name names. There are people who've been reorganizing the house where I live, and this has been going on for quite a while. And at one point, my raincoat, which I'm very fond of, was reorganized out of existence. Like, and, I, and then, and this is the part that bothers me, I had to convince the same people that I had ever owned such a raincoat. And I, <laughs> I could tell that I was doubted. There was, People were saying, well, maybe you never had a raincoat like that. And I said, no, I, I probably have pictures of myself. And I definitely had this raincoat. And so a year <laughs> More than a year went by, and occasionally I would mention the raincoat. and then there were these you know, there was eye rolling. You know, he's, he's talking about the raincoat again. And then several days ago, they they found that raincoat. They found that raincoat. It's not a very big house. I just want to say's it's a, it's, a it's a converted garage, so it's not a very big house. And my raincoat was able to hide from the authorities in that house for, I'm gonna say, 14 months. So I'm very excited to be reunited on this rainy day with my raincoat. All right, here we go. We've got lots of questions and comments and things like that. So, I mean, what is there to do, really, but just take them, take them all. Here's Elizabeth in Middletown. Hi, Elizabeth.
7: Hi, Colin. Well, I hope my question doesn't uh, add to your self-doubt in the way that the missing raincoat did. Um, Because I love your show, I think you're the smartest person on radio, Um, and it's the contrast between the intelligence of your show and the tenor of the ads that you all have recently recorded for your show. Um, If I were listening to NPR or WNPR for the first time, and I heard those ads, I would say... I'm not gonna to listen to that. <laughs> and I say this with love, Colin. Maybe I have to say it if someday you'll thank me, but um or you know, it's just I feel it's just not representative of your show, which is funny but not kinda wacky. So I'm wondering, um well of course I wanna hear your response, but like did you have focus group or, or we what?
2: We go not uh, um Do we seem like the kind of people who would focus group our promos? Evidently
7: not. (laughs) No, We
2: we just wanted to do kind of a new bunch of promos that sounded kind of different. I wrote them all. Um, It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) I'm not sensitive about it. Uh, I'm neither... Uh, inclined to exalt them or to doubt them. And just you know, they're not going to be with, with us forever. We're going to have a whole other tranche of promos that are going to come out. But I think to the earlier call that we got from the people who were really t- person who's yeah. really tired of the flamingo promos, the whole goal ought to be you know. Put them on. Don't play them until people are tearing their hair out. Then play something else. Put something else on. Use something different. Uh, make it a little – and I think also there's kind of a sameness to a lot of promos. Our idea was, well, let's use some promos that don't sound like everybody else's promos. Um, so to the extent that we had any idea at all, which right. you know, might be inflating things. So course, don't, they don't worry. don't sound like your show. Well, that's, don't – That's my point. Don't worry. Don't worry. They won't be around forever, and I don't think that they will deter anyone from listening to the show. And, and anyway, the person who called before about the flamingos said that she liked the promos, especially the ones that were being done by the nice young lady, who I believe is is Cat Pastor. So, so it's you know it's really just, it's tied at 1-1 right now on the new promos. All right. So, okay, I should just go to the top and go right down, right? Uh, unless there's something else that's really important that we should – no, I'll just go to the top. I'm dithering too much anyway. Here's Tom from Naugatuck. Hi, Tom, you have the floor.
1: Hey, hey. Oh, uh, uh, you know, here's the thing. I I, I think you're a brilliant radio performer in Connecticut that, that, you know, you can't do that in other places. But Bob Steele did it, and my dad loved Jack Parr. My dad loved Bob Steele, and my dad loved Jack Parr. I just would wonder if you can connect those two.
2: Um, I sort of can and can't. Let me try though. So for people who don't know who Bob, Bob Steele for many, I mean, decades and decades and decades, was not only the most popular radio personality in Connecticut, he was, in terms of capturing percentage of market share, one of the two most popular radio personalities in America. Um, the other one, I think, was out in Kansas City, in terms of what percentage of his own market he captured. Like, uh, Bob Steele, he was a morning uh, radio host on WTIC-AM, and he would get like 36 percent of the entire radio audience or something. you know. And that might even be a bad book for Bob Steele. I don't really re- remember the numbers anymore. But they were just astronomical. Um, he was just a bigger force uh, as a radio personality. Now, his show was really <laughs> – how to describe his show? Well, I'll put it. I'll, I'll put it this way. At WTIC, there was an account executive who used to do a kind of Bob Newhart-style stand-up routine for his fellow account representatives and, and whoever else would listen, in which he tried to explain the Bob Steele show to an advertiser based in New York or LA, and it would be uh, like, okay, so he has a word of the day. Yeah, he tells people. You know how to pronounce a word that you should say er instead of er when it's err. No no people really they no, they love it. And he announces the birthdays of anybody over eighty years old. Yeah, that's really popular. So it was this very cornball kind of radio show. There was kind of an underlying intelligence to it, but it didn't you wouldn't notice it. <laughs> I mean, the woman who has problems with our promo, the Bob Steele show would really be troubling to her. But it was an incredibly popular thing. Now, I consider Jack Parr to be in a completely different category. Now, for people who don't know that name, years and years ago, he was one of the original kind of late-night television hosts. And and he was unusual in two or three ways. One of them was I think he was more emotionally present than – I mean, you could watch David Letterman for – Decades and genius though David Letterman was, you wouldn't really, I don't think, be getting to know David Letterman. But if you watched Jack Parr, you would be because he used a lot of himself and his own emotions. And when he wasn't happy about things, he would like cry on the air and stuff. But the other thing that he did that I always liked was that his, his guests were often people. Who didn't necessarily have a movie out, or they were just good talkers. They were people he enjoyed talking to. Uh, Oscar Levant was on all the time. Whether Oscar Levant had any products in the pipeline, it didn't really matter. He just was a good talker. There was this alleged singer named Genevieve or Genevieve or something. And I, like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure nobody ever heard her sing. She was like a singer. But she was mainly on the Jack Parr show because he liked talking to her. And I always liked that idea. I'd rather have a host talk to somebody. I mean, the nose is a little bit based on that, you know, the idea that you find people who are good talkers and then you worry later about what the subject matter is going to be, whereas so much of late night television seems to be driven by, oh, well, here comes Celebrity acts, and he brought a clip with him from the new thing he's doing. We're going to watch the clip. We're all going to, you know, care that we pretend that we care about all this. And and so anyway, that those are all of my thinkings about such things. All right, here we go. We're going to go elsewhere. Here's Howard in Manchester. Howard, you have the floor.
8: Well, thank you, Colin. A um, couple of weeks ago, you had a show about rom coms. Now, I didn't think I was very much of a rom com fan, but I was amazed at how many of those selections that your panel was talking about that I had uh, seen um, and even went back afterwards and and watched another one or two that was on the list. There's a rom-com, I guess I would classify it as such, that no one ever seems to mention and I think is one of the best that it was ever made, and it's called People Will Talk.
2: People Will Talk.
8: 1951 movie with Cary Grant, Gene Crane.
2: Have you ever heard of that? I haven't. I'm guessing this is McNichol, McNichol, uh, McPants, the person who answered the phone. Uh, he, he knew right away what you're talking about. Um, so I don't know that one. I'm, I'm not as good with, you know, movies pre-1960 as, for example, the person I live with, much better at them. McNichol actually um, is also, you know, born at the wrong time or something. He's, he loves all the movies from the 40s and 50s. So
8: well, I, I won't give away the plot of it. But there's a scene near the end that I think would would rival uh, the strawberry scene in Cane uh, Mutiny.
2: Right. Also a great rom-com, by the way.
8: <laughs> well, to some, maybe. Yeah.
2: Um,
8: <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, there's
2: a whole Jose Ferrer, Fred McMurray thing that's going on. A lot of people don't pick it up in the movie, but uh, believe me, it's there. All right. So people will talk. That's a, great, that's a great recommendation. I will make an effort to see people will talk. Uh, and then people will talk, presumably. All right. We actually, okay, this is really good. Cause, so we opened a Mr. Carp envelope, and I found a clip about John Philip Sousa. And so now here's Joe from New Haven, who would like to talk about John Philip Sousa. That's the way this show should work. All right. You have the floor, Joe. Hi, Colin. Um, topic near and dear to my heart. I don't consider myself an expert,
1: but I know some stuff. Uh, John Philip Sousa, uh, one of his great um, modern-day supporters is actually from Connecticut. His name is Keith Bryan, and he used to, back in the 80s, tour with a band that played Sousa music and had, um, uh, you know, kind of like historical costumes to go with it. So if you ever do want want to do a show on on Sousa, he's the guy to talk to.
2: Well, actually, Lily My Tyson, connection. Lily Tyson right now is uh, working on a story about historical reenactors. I don't know whether a historical right, yeah, reenactor yeah, of, what, uh, of John Sousa, John Philip Sousa's, yeah, which he has in mind. That's but... exactly what he was. I'd like to so... point out that Sousa left a legacy of 136 marches, uh, numerous operettas, and the sousaphone. Obviously, it's a large bass tuba whose design he suggested. It's named after him. Um, and he introduced syncopated dance music like ragtime to France and earned American music new respect abroad. That's all in the Mr. Carp clip.
1: There you go. So that's a lot of things I would have mentioned. Um, my my experience with Sousa was at a local university back in the '80s when I was in grad school, and I studied organ and I took several of his marches and arranged them for the pipe organ and got very fortunate that someone actually picked up the publication and uh, that back in the time, which was kind of a big name. So that was like my sole musical feather in my cap that I carry to this day.
2: Well, it's Um, it's an excellent feather. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when Sousa released music,
1: he did it for every imaginable group of instruments all at once, piano forehands for the band, saxophone quartet with... Um, with the violin, you know, whatever. It all came out at once. This guy was a, a great capitalist, and he knew, he knew how to, to put his music out to the public, and the public loved it. Um, but you asked, a, you asked an interesting question. Is Stars and Stripes his best march? And I would say, arguably, yes. Um, it's nationalistically tied to our hearts, so maybe musically it's not necessarily a fair statement to say that it is his best. right. But wow. I've I've worked with other um, composers, and I'll throw one out there: uh, "Nobles of the Mystic Shrine."
2: And, no, noble, and that's, that, that's the name of a march. "Nobles of the Mystic Shrine." Yes, "Nobles of the Mystic Shrine." All right, I we're gonna we're gonna get that fun. march. We're gonna get that march, and we're gonna play it the next time we do. Ask or tell me anything. That's that's the promise I make to you. Also, I feel like what's the best Sousa march is like <laughs> next year. Instead of doing "Song of the Summer," let's do what's the what's the Sousa march of the. Summer? <laughs> This the summer instead. And that way we don't have to wade through all – we don't have to worry about Drake. He's not going to put out a Sousa march. Uh, we'll just do what's the Sousa march of the summer. Jot that down, McPants. Let's, let's not forget. Let's put that in the tickler file. Here's Tom from Milford, and then we're going to take a break. Hi, Tom.
8: Hey there. How you doing? I uh, love your show. I want to say that uh, I watched The Nose – I listened to The Nose last Friday and really loved it. I thought it was great. I loved the review of uh, Nope, uh, and on the strength of it, I, my significant and I went there to see the, in the theater before it left um, on le- just this past Saturday, my 68th birthday, where they were doing three dollar showings, which was perfect. And I really loved how in the show you um, in, in the show you did you uh, had a little shout out to Sheb uh song Purple People Eater, which is which they referenced in the movie in a very clever way. And now that I've said the word purple, you have to
2: open a... Uh, no, have to open. That's, you did it so well there. All right. That's really great. First of all, uh, props go to uh, Jonathan McPants. Uh, he's the person who insisted that we do that. Sure. We also were... I was circulating today on Slack this very interesting article about um, the way movies use horror... Well, the way horror movies use innocent music, you know? And so they'll... I, I always used to... I used to work with uh, Garrett Condon, and, and I used to tell him that, like, you could take any sort of nursery rhyme song any child's lullaby and 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 have the que- and do a, a promo for a horror movie that had just kind of a, a a playground swing creaking creaking rustily in the breeze and in the background you'd hear a child go bye baby bunting daddy is gone hunting, coming to a theater near you, you know. And then you just go – because there's something incredibly spooky about innocent-sounding things if they're transposed into a horrifying context. So uh, I don't know how I got into that. Oh, because of, of Purple People Eater. You know, was, it was mentioned. Chev Woolley's Purple People Eater was mentioned uh, in that article. Um, all right. So let's see. I'm opening another envelope why did i think this was a good idea all right i'll tell you what let's take a break i will at least take a few moments during the break to scrutinize the four or five clips that are in this mr carp envelope and see if there's one that we need to discuss
6: turn into
2: a just take a look at the mountain that you've been climbing you're getting closer to all of the
3: In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
0: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
7: Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut, sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and MedSpa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org
2: Pepin. All right, we're back. And uh, it's time to say some thank yous. Kat Pastor, that nice young lady that you hear in the <laughs> the, for the promos, is the technical producer of the show today and pretty much every day. Uh, and Jonathan McPants is up here. He is screening um, phone calls and thinking about old movies that he'd like to rewatch. Uh, and that's who's working on the show today. Thanks very much for uh, tuning in yourself. I do have a Mr. Carp clip here in my hand, which I will share with you before the air, the cock crows. But, um, but before that, let's uh, just continuing. I like the way the conversation can kind of bridge from one phone call to another. So here's Dan from Middletown. Hi, Dan. Hey, Colin. So I wanted to call in and give an alternate perspective from, uh, Elizabeth
1: also in Middletown an alternate Middletonian perspective, if you will. Um, and to her point, maybe it's not the most broad netcast, but when I heard that Jesse Thorn clip that you did, the, um, You know, the promo where the guy calls in and says, my favorite thing about the Colin McEnroe show is the host, Jesse Thorne. I have not laughed so hard at a a bit, a segment, a a commercial in, I don't know, my entire life, frankly. It was, to me, one of the most comical things I've ever heard, um, and I applaud you for doing it.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's actually the one that I like the most, too, and Kat does a great job on that one. There's a mystery voice. I don't think we're we're allowed to say who the mystery voice is of the kind of – actually, it's her father. (laughs) (laughs) I won't tell you what kind of voice I told Kat to go find, but she immediately decided that it was going to be her father. Um, All right. So, meanwhile, I've opened a Mr. Carp envelope uh, because somebody said one of the words that you say, and then I have to open a Mr. Carp envelope. I've actually forgot. I know it's purple. And Or platypus or pineapple, but I've forgotten what the fourth word was. So somebody could say that word and I, I wouldn't even know. I, I made up a rule and I immediately forgot it. This is pretty interesting. It's about the uh, 18th century British cleric Gilbert White, uh, who, who encouraged people to see nature not as something that existed out in Golden, Colorado, or in some river remote from humankind, but as sort of woven into the fabric of daily life, which kind of goes back to Mark from Willimantic's earlier call— uh, you know about that idea of just stepping outside your door and you know and maybe it is you see a cardinal on the feeder, you know maybe you take a few steps or you just go a short distance and you 're on a nice little trail um and so this a writer i don 't know what publication this is from, but it sort of looks like it might be the wall street journal um not, surprising, not surprisingly, given his eye for homegrown natural wonders, White has been having something of a moment. An art exhibit and recent companion volume, Drawn to Nature, assembled many of the illustrations used in various versions of his masterwork, The Stubborn Light of Things. Oh uh, No, that's separately. The Stubborn Light of Things, a popular nature podcast hosted by writer Melissa Harrison, as an armchair travelogue for listeners confined by social distancing, including excerpts from White's journals. So there you go. Uh, a little bit from Mr. Carp Envelope uh, about Gilbert White. All right. Here we go. We're going to move on here. Um, all right. So the number, by the way, we're all on phone calls. <laughs> so you can definitely get on the air if you call right now. I'm going to take Chuck and then I will have nobody left to talk to. I can always talk to myself. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. And here is Chuck from mystic hi chuck you're on the air
1: hi colin love your show hey thanks thanks for picking me up um my question or, or comment or whatever is is the state of connecticut gives out benefits to let's say people when they retire and mm. that like healthcare is a mm. perfect example right and when people go use your healthcare, they they can use it anywhere in the country could could the state require them to use it within the state borders therefore recycling any money that it gives out to back in the state so that we don't lose it. Because I, I know people that have retired to Florida and now they're using the healthcare down in Florida.
2: Right. So like that. the simple answer to that question is no, certainly not under the present state of things. Uh, These are all part of collective bargaining contracts uh, that are negotiated. Uh, And, you know, pretty much all of the state employees are represented by a union. Um, It really wouldn't make any sense anyway to give people. I mean, what would make more sense really would be to have a national health care system that was unified enough so that this wasn't even a conversation that would be possible to have. But you, you really you're not really giving somebody a benefit if you if you give them a benefit that they can only exercise within a certain certain geographical area, um, and I mean, I I know some of the union negotiators, or I did in the past. There's no way they would throw that one, that one away. So I don't care who gets to be governor or which contract comes open, I, I don't think that that one's on the table. I get what you're saying, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, just I, I just don't think it's ever going to work that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just... Not just an idea. Uh, it's a, well, you know, this, there are no bad ideas. There are ideas that are never going to happen which is a completely separate category and into which your idea I think probably will be placed. But it's not going to be placed in the bad idea um, bin because that's reserved for our ideas. (laughs) The ideas that we on this show have, we get to have all the bad ideas. All right. Here is Carol in Newington. Hi, Carol. You're on the air.
6: Hi, Colin. Um, Quick question. Top three things I should see in Kobe, Japan. When I'm there with my daughter uh, at the end of the month? Oh, that's a good
2: question. Um, Well, first of all, the good thing news about Japan is that, you know, once you're sort of of in the South there, uh, and it's, you know, you don't really have to confine yourself to Kobe at all. First of all, let me just tell you don't even try to eat any Kobe beef. I don't know. You may not even be a beef eater. I wasn't thinking of it. No. I mean, it's like one thing you should understand about Japan is things are really expensive in Japan. And sometimes things are things that are even made or produced in Japan are less expensive elsewhere. (laughs) Like I was. Yeah. We're we're going to
6: Kobe because she's going to school there. So Kobe is the ultimate destination.
2: Okay, So, I mean, you're really near Kyoto. Go to Kyoto. Walk around Kyoto. It's just mind boggling. Um, You're really, really near Osaka. Uh, I mean, I really, I mean, everything in Japan is really, really packed together. Uh, So, I mean, and once, I mean, once you're there, you realize that their sense of scale in space is very, very different from ours. Um, So something that would be like a store. Here is like eight stores, <laughs> uh, okay. and and so towns are very close together. The railroads uh, work really well. They're very complicated because there's a bunch of different kinds of lines and stuff like that. You're going to need a little bit of help uh, with that, but you can go any you can go anywhere in the south pretty fast. Um. so I would say so you can go I mean if you're in Kobe you're practically in Osaka Uh, okay. that would be the airport you're probably going to land in if you're going straight to Kobe uh, yep. Osaka's great D- the Dotonbori uh, section uh, of Osaka is kind of like what you see You know, I don't know if you're if you have sort of a Blade Runner vision of Japan at night, the the Dotonbori area of Osaka would be very satisfying in that way. And then if you can sort of work it out, I don't know, I haven't been in a really long time. I I think I was in Japan in 2009. So everything I'm telling you is fantastically out of date. Uh, But I will say, you know, the baths are kind of fun. Japanese, you know, they like these they like these places where you go and there are all kinds of different baths. You know, like whirlpools. But, like, for example, there's one that has a very small <laughs> – this is going to sound like I'm making it up, but I'm not. It has a small electric current that kind of runs through it. You, know, you can stick your wobbly ankle, you know, into the water with an electric current running through it. Which I realize you've gone through your entire life trying to avoid getting into a bathtub that someone threw a toaster into. I get that. But but this is – I don't know. This is sort of part of their culture. So, I don't know i i'm I'm the wrong person to ask but i think the main thing to do is enjoy you know it's it's nothing like go to nara go to kurashiki go and just you know just let it be what it is one of the problems with japan is it's a very 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 different culture from our own and you can a lot of people go there and then they spend the whole time wishing it were more like something that's familiar to them but you just have to sort of give in to the craziness of it all uh, and just enjoy the craziness of it all, and you'll have a great time. And definitely go out at night. Oh, go to a baseball game. Go to a baseball okay. game. Even if you don't like baseball, go to a baseball game because they're way more I, fun in Japan.
6: If I go to a baseball game,
2: can I avoid my husband, Tim? Uh, I don't want to see the? Oh, the, you're that. That's who you are. Oh, well, now I know why you're going to Kobe. I get the whole thing now. Uh, no, you can't. I get the whole question. I understand so much more about what going, you're asking me.
3: I'm going to Kobe to get away from Helmeki
6: for a week. All right. Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> that may not be far enough. You may need to go farther from Japan. You talk to Jeff Bezos. See if you can get a, uh, like a rocket that will put you in space, and you can really get away from him. All right. So we have to stop there. I was wondering how she knew I was in Kobe. Um, all right. So we have to stop there. Thanks for listening today. Uh, this was loads of fun. And thanks to everybody who helped out. And... I'm sitting here dazed and confused and alone and afraid in a world I never made.